E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Johannes Hirsch of the Hirsch Winery in Austria on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for the invitation. Great to have you here. So you started at winemaking school in 1985. That's correct. Yes, I was 14 years, which is still quite unusual, I think, for um, outside of European countries. But, you know, that age, uh, um, I was like not really forced from my parents, but it was a logical way. And it took five years. It's actually all the uh, world's oldest wine school. Oh, okay. And what were your classmates like at that time? Because that's kind of a defining era for Austrian wine, I would think, in terms of the post-85 uh, era. Well, that now goes deeply into psychology of my life now, actually, that question, because uh, it was the time of very conservative wine, don't even want to say winemaking. It was the 85, of course, was the famous little, let's call it crisis now in Austria, you know, a very famous year, with a big uh, ch- chance, too, for Austrian wine. And at that stage, um, it was not really cool to be a, a winemaker's or a farmer's viticulturist son. So in, uh, before wine school, that was more like the, the farmer's thing. And then in wine school, I was with a lot of really, let's say, very conservative boys, you know. And that was the time when my father started to hike in Nepal or Turkey and so on some five and a half thousand meter high hills and that was also a very different thing to be grown up in a wine school your family they had the winery but your dad was a little bit of an explorer in a way i think he was never really happy about the way before 85 you know a lot of one liter wine two liter wine really you didn't even have the chance to get paid for good quality you know wine was a cheap thing and uh, that helped a lot to to increase quality to buy good land you know, he just took over two and a half hectares, what is the six acres in 1978, and probably even thought about, is it worth to go on? And then with that, again, sorry for the year 85 again, he, he saw, okay, now let's buy great land, Heidingstein, Geisberg, and now people are willing to pay a little bit more money for much more work, which much lower crop. After you graduated from wine school, about four years later, you started traveling around and seeing vineyards in different parts of the world. Yes, uh, with 19, so after uh, after the examination, I started in uh, New Zealand uh, for three or four months. And actually, I stayed in Nick Mills' uh, boys' room when he oh, was sure. still in school. He was here 
Nick Mills like, oh, Ripper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, from Ripon. Uh, still one of the most beautiful units in the world for me. Then moved to Australia and then uh, to California. And 93 also South Africa. What did you take from those experiences? I imagine it was a little bit different than Austria. It's totally different. On one hand, you know, I first I thought I want to, when I came back, I wanted to change everything. I was, I, I shouldn't even say that here now probably loudly, but I was almost embarrassed about Riesling. And I thought my future is Chardonnay and, and Cabernet, and I couldn't wait to, to roll uh, malolactic fermented Chardonnay in barrels. And at some stage, I realized I'm not able to produce Burgundy. And then I almost realized, hey, what's Grunovetlin and Riesling actually doing on our land? And that's what makes me happy now. So you get back and you, you took over the winery in 95. That was the first. Well, you know, my father just turned 66 in, a, in two months. He's still very young. He's totally involved in the business, hopefully another 30 years. You know, uh, cheap labor is, is a great thing to have. <laughs> you know? Don't tell him. And um, no, without kidding. He, I mean, you know, the best thing you can have is, is a family member totally responsible for everything and knowledge in every little screw of the winery so of course it's great to work with him still and i i 95 was actually first uh, vintage i did responsible as a winemaker but the superstars for me are actually not the winemakers they are the viticulturist you know the old thing quality is happening in the vineyard it's not just a pro word you can just ruin quality in the win in, in the winery sorry so everything the, the more you keep your hands away as a winemaker the better so let's talk about a little bit about those vineyards because you you have some key vineyards in the Comptal. Yeah. Geisberg, Lahm, and Helgenstein. Mm -hmm. And you once told me you had three vineyards in five stories. And what did you mean by that? One of these first things which we did in 99 was that we totally went away from the, the red wine boom, which also happened in Austria with the French paradox and so on. And everybody was planting red. And I, I saw that can't be the future. We have uh, rocks, let's call them rocks, with about 360 meters. What would, would that be? Like more than 1,000 feet probably uh, with a hill called Geisberg, which is mainly primary rock, typical primary rock, which is mica schist. And uh, in the part we have our Riesling, it's um, also topped with brown earth. And there is a, um, a neighbor hill called Heiligenstein, which is conglomerate. So next to each other, but totally different. Uh, one more feminine, I would say, one more smoky, rougher. And the bottom parts are covered with loess because so the, so the glaciers, the, the, the sand from the glaciers was brought by the wind and then got compacted to loess. So for me, perfectly with Grüner. And, uh, but the roots also find the rock underneath. So Grüner has the water from loess. So we you hear that we plant Grüner Vetlinum on the bottom because Grüner has a higher demand for water. And uh, Riesling, I think, of all... Of course, needs the old rock, you know. Um, and talking about the the question of the five different stories, that's the way I think about it. The Geisberg, of course, it would be easier to see it in the in the tasting room now. But the Geisberg has three different single vineyards. The bottom part is is called, named after my village, Kamern, uh, and Kamerner Geisberg on the bottom is Löss, so very good for Grunewaldliner, and then goes more into this Schist I told you about. So. There, definitely Riesling is the better choice. And then you go higher up, where it becomes the Zübinger Geisberg, and named after the village Zübing, which is a neighbor village. And there, the, the more south-facing part is uh, also the Maikaschist top with brown earth, but also it goes totally to the west. So also actually in, a, in one single vineyard, two different stories. And then you have an eastern part called Strasser Geisberg, and there you have much more Löss, where you find much more Grüner Wettliner and a very... Great old variety called Neuburger. 
you're there in 95 and originally your family did have red wine vineyards and you decided to stop making red. Yes, you know, I mean, on, on one hand, I saw that it was not possible to produce really the, the quality I would like to produce every year. Like maybe in 10 years, it would happen two years that I was very excited and another three years where I was not unhappy. But, you know, also in a tasting, you opened with full proud, your best Grunewald Lean or your top Riesling. And after that, a uh, medium bodied 12 alcohol Zweigelt, Austria's top um, most planted variety came. It was not, it was like, I don't know, having having a, a cheap burger off the great menu or something, you know. And, and on the other hand, the crop to make that great red wine was so low. It was so... We had Sankt Laurent, which is for me a tremendous spicy sour cherry red. It goes a lot into Burgundy style. You know, we had like 600 to 800 liters per hectare. That's, that's, it was just it was too expensive for a hobby, even to be honest. So you devoted more of your time and energy to the Grand Cru whites. Yeah. And you mentioned that the Gruner needs a little bit more water in the low soil and that the Riesling prefers a drier site. But how else do they differ? either in terms of how they are in the winery when they come in or how they age? You have to see them maybe in... I, I would see them in my winery in more in, in Grunewaldliner in one more step. Grunewaldliner is also very, very good in Austria for very easy drinking, 11 alcohol. Sorry for talking about analytics now, but just to give an impression how light it can be, a fresh, we call it peppery, whatever that means, spicy Grunewaldliner, everyday wine. But already quite a bit of wine. And then when you come to the medium part, it's an amazing glass of poor wine, I think. Wonderful food wine. And when you come to the top level, many people say, and you know the blind tastings where they had Grunewaldlinas in the, in the Burgundy tastings, say the Burgundy style. I would hope that someday we talk about the real Grunewaldliner style and don't have to compare anymore. But, um, but this is actually the most tricky part for me talking now about Grunewaldliner Kamana Lam, which is Kampfer's most famous single vineyard on bottom of Heiligenstein Hill, or Grub, for example. Um, they have just um, a couple of days of an open window where you really have the perfect ripeness and don't miss the perfect acid balance. And that's what it's all about for me, healthy fruit and the perfect balance acid. And then the wines can age forever. Of course, we should also then talk about aging temperatures. That's also not so important. One. But and Riesling for me, you know, in Austria needs a little bit higher maturity to be to have ripe fruit. So we start, let's call it in the middle with the easy drinking wines, and then on the on the single vineyards, you talk much more about the um, the saltiness from these different rocks. Uh, Riesling by nature has more acid too, so um, quite often Riesling gets picked a little later up to two weeks in our winery. But the main thing is, again, healthy, healthy. I prefer to have less sugar degrees, healthy instead of too much with botrytis. And do you find yourself having to pick a little bit earlier on certain sites than others? Yes, we do. We we It changes also from year to year. We, we now had uh, two years where we picked Geisberg up to two weeks later than Heilingstein, and uh, this year we picked Heilingstein later. It's all—it's also a body feeling. Does Botrytis come or not? Uh, often, you know, uh, how how are the pips and are they are they ripe? And uh, with Grunewaldliner, we really have to watch it. But often pre-selection already starts beginning of September, and then the tops are more or less finished end of October. You're in the Comptal. How should I understand the Comptal 
versus other regions of Austria that may produce Gruner and Riesling? I would say Kamtal, um, you know, the main regions are Wagram, Kamtal, Kremstal, Wachau, Treisental, and of course the biggest one, Weinviertel. Kamtals, I would say, are more we are really not talking that the others are not, but I think what's really outstanding for them is a really certain finesse, uh, a lot of density, creaminess, richness, with still lower alcohol. And that's, uh, you know, I'm a wine drinker. I like to drink wine. I don't want to feel it. And that's a very important point for me, pleasure and, and juiciness. And I think that's very typical for Kamtai. Something I've noticed about your wines over time is that in some years they seem to have more RS than others. They seem to be a little sweeter in some years and drier in others. Yes, that happened. You know, we converted in 2006 and uh, I just wanted to let the wines totally do what they want. And and so we had especially 07, 08, quite a bit more residual up to um, 18 to whatever, around 20 and then the curve went back, and interestingly, since 2010, they are dry again. Even now, 2013, which is one of the best vintages ever for me, even comparable with 99, probably, they are drier than ever. Uh, and what I like about it is that they really, really totally focus in minerality much better. They are also, you know, what I now, the only thing I actually changed is I really helped them uh, over um, fermentation. I like higher temperature. When you look back to the really old Austrian or Kamtal whites, uh, which are tasting great now from the 20s, 30s, you see these, some of them, they were never temperature controlled. Nobody cared about technique or something or, or, or enzymes or whatever all that stuff is, you know. They just, they were like nuclear power stations, you know. They, they just fermented like crazy. But, and another thing, of course, were brought to the market much later. Nobody cared about fruit two weeks after fermentation. They were drunk two years after or even much later. And I, I think uh, I had a, a, a just think about that now. I, I talked about David Schilknecht now uh, once. Uh, where does actually winemaking start? You know, because you always want to say winemaking makes uniformity and actually winemaker more, more sometimes become, becomes even a swear word for uniformity, you know. And, and then I realized actually, where does it really start? Cooling is a very bad thing for me. I think that really causes flavors which are everywhere in the world. But on the other hand, is winemaking also if you help temperature, you know, and I think that's the important. Yeast should feel well. Why do you feel well with, if you ever, you have a cold shower all the time, you know, you should, I think fermentation should be a happy thing. And, and I really realize with the wines, the, much, the wines are much more focused in, in what I'm looking for. So not doing super cold ferments, but allowing warmer ferments, but at the same time, bringing out more minerality. Because when I think of cooler ferments, often they're very crisp, you know, the resulting wines. Yes, I think my main problem is still, do, do we then also talk about this candy fruit or do, do we talk about the the stable fruit? But this this fruit is not here again two weeks after fermentation. It it needs a certain time. It Often a couple of months are not enough, you know, like 12, 11, it took one and a half years to be really back to the juiciness and to, to what I'm looking for in the wines. Uh, so I think this really good fermentation temperature allows them to really kick and focus totally in the, into minerality. And you mentioned the conversion to biodynamics. How did that start off and what did you start to see along the way? Well, uh, probably 15 or less years ago, I thought that's not interesting me. I saw a lot of vineyards, which I really didn't see very 
positive. Um, and, and then more and more, uh, I received blindly tastings of wine, which totally were outstanding for me. Like one of them, them is uh, Gobis Le Soulard 2001, which I had blindly. And this is, was really the saltiness and fingerprint I'm totally looking for. Low alcohol, drinkable, and, and totally outstanding. And, and then I found this extra layer of, of salt and, and, and tipiticity is, is, was just possible with biological produced wines. And then how I, I found uh, the way to it. What was it like to start? Did the weather cooperate or did you have some rough times? We have one big advantage in our winery. My father did in 78 a very unusual stop. He totally moved to compost from a biofarmer. In the 70s, a, a cheesemaker from our region was looking for um, a, a guy, a farmer, who was willing to change agricultural land with manure. And, you know, 70s were chemical fertilizer time. So happily, happily my father was the guy who, who was willing to change that. So we had, when we started to convert, we almost had 30 years of compost already in the vineyards. And that our, we had a consultant with a group together, and he, saw, he said that we definitely have a big advantage to, to vineyards, which didn't have compost, of course, since decades. So that helped a lot. My father also, he actually at that time already thought about going bio, but probably it was too crazy for him. That was the step too much. But what many people now say about sustainability, that's what he actually always did. Uh, and that also definitely helps. Did you start to see different changes with how the grapes were fermenting or in the results from the bio besides the salinity? Were there other measurable factors that you thought were changing? I think on one hand, getting dry again is definitely not just part of my wish to to help them a little staying uh, cozy. You know, I think it's. It, I hope it's really also a yeast population. I can't prove that now with with, with tests, but it's a feeling from from uh, how fermentation is, is is going, and um, also something I never thought about and never measured, but also as a feeling, I think the pHs go lower and lower. You know, and and that's that's a great thing. The wines are. Are amazingly stable and and great crisp and 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 uh, that definitely changes and goes slower. So as you've done more biodynamics, as the conversion has gone along more, you found that the acidity has gone higher. Measurable acidity is probably not really high. You know, also the years really change extre- extremely. But I think this this uh, what what pH would be in English? Um, this 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 Seidestärke the. The, the, the strength of, 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 of acid, that's what's changing. And this, I think, makes this special extra kick in, in the wines. So you did some other experiments around 2002 and 2003. In, in O2, you released two different bottlings of the same, the same vineyard, same grape variety, but it, it had been aged, in one case, longer on the leaves than the other. And What made you do that? C- correct. I was, I was very unhappy about the Austrian drinking... Um, um, how people in Austria drink, you know, by far too young. And I wanted to show that uh, a single vineyard aged on fine lease is much better by just by waiting. So I had an April version and the same uh, wine stayed three months longer on fine yeast and then got bottled in September as a September version. And the change was incredible. But now looking back, I, I now went to the middle. I think... When you look totally for juiciness and finesse, I think often in my wines, September for yeast is almost too too long. So I, I put them away from yeast now when late springtime, April roughly. Nothing is strict, but roughly. 
and we we bottled them before hot summer. I think this gives this extra freshness and and beauty to the to the whites now. Did you feel like that was something that was accepted in the community in terms of a longer time before bottling? Or was it something that was kind of an outlier move? Was it something that was a little very unusual? Or? At that stage, really bringing, you know, you also have to see we just till this year, this year we will also bring two new single vineyards. But so far, we just produced three uh, Grunewaldliners and three Rieslings, and three of these six wines are single vineyards. So we really had just three wines to sell over the year, and then that was actually a big step for me and happily since last year for example my most of my colleagues from the region bring the single vineyards in september that's a great great uh, step all this all these f- single vineyards from the traditionsweingüter that's what the name of this uh, friendship uh, group is uh, and that really helps a lot so you feel that uh, other people in other wineries are also aging a little bit longer now Oh yes, it's 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 written actually now uh, stat, statuten. Uh, it's, uh, it's like a statute. It's a statute, yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and um, you know you have to see what my disadvantage was when uh, either if it's my best vintage or not. But if the the vintage was negatively written by the wine writers, many restaurants were like, okay, I better skip your vintage because the the, the new vintage from the others comes in six months anyway. So now not bringing the wines in March anymore, but with we in September helps a lot to be honest. Uh, and you did something else that was a bit unusual in that in 03, you battled under Stelvin for the Grand Cru vineyards, for the, the more single vineyard wines. And how did that change come about? Yeah, that was quite a big step because we, first I have to say, I was really bored of, of not knowing what I'm doing with my wine. It's a, it's a big year. You do a lot for great a great job. In the last moment, you put something in and close your wine with something. You have no idea how it's tasting in one hour. I had, I, I had once a... a a bottled bottle, uh, I, had a, I had friends, it was bottled for one and a half hours. It was never laying. It was always, I just carried it away from the bottling line and it was corked, you know. And, and, and I, I, it, the most problem for me was always this, this bitterness, the, the flabbiness, this masked corks. And I, this was also image problem. You know, if you don't know the winery, you say it's a bad winemaker and not it's a bad wine. So I, I thought Stelvin would be the only chance. Happily, I, had a, I have a lot of friends in New Zealand who helped me to escape or not make too many mistakes, hopefully. And I'm, the big scandal in Austria was that uh, we did not start with those easy drinking wines. We did 100% of the single vineyards right away. I wanted to really show, hey, it's really good for aging too. It has proved that it's perfect for aging too. Some of the... New Zealand context that you had made were able to give you some advice about using Stelvin. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, one of these big things, is, of course, that you first I would never use something which is not proven since decades, of course. Uh, so I really trust in the in this brand, uh, and I'm not getting getting paid f- from them. Uh, I have to say. The, um, and the other thing is, co- of course, the the free sulfur question. I mean, we, I'm grown up in a European old wine school, as I said before, and you know, you are more or less grown up in the better little more than than too little and the great thing about this closure is and is is use less and that's another thing by the ph by the way i mean you 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 suddenly have 30 percent less free sulfur and you know if we drink now two bottles of wine we will know next day if we had 30 percent less or more and this is another fascinating thing about stelvin did anyone else sort of push you in that direction was there anyone that you talked to because it seemed like a unique thing to do at that level in austria at that time 
Well, uh, it was uh, somebody here from New York. Uh, everybody will know who is listening. Paul Greco from Hearth Restaurant. Oh, Paul. Paul, yes. He was sitting in the tasting room in 2002 in, I think, March and said, hey, close your best wines with Stelvin. And I was like, Paul, you're crazy. I never can do this. How should I? And three months later, actually, this Koenig room group, my importers, uh, came and I wanted to show them a uh, Riesling Trockenbeernosle 2000. I produced 400 small bottles of it. It was in Vinari magazine, I think, best, best sweet wine of the year. And I couldn't even show it. From the four bottles, three were corking. And I was so frustrated that night. And I called the next day, I called the, the bottling line service and everything to organize it for the year after. So you mentioned there was a what you said was kind of a bit of a scandal about moving to Stelvin. Was it was there repercussions within Austria? Were the people upset? Or? There were magazines totally excited. Some were neutral after the let's look at it and watch it. And the most famous one even uh, asked the consumers to boycott our wines. Really? So today everybody's like, so what's Delvin? What what are you talking about? But you know, looking back eleven years, it it was quite something. Having three kids now, I would not be the pioneer anymore. <laughs> So what other changes? I feel like you changed the pruning trellising uh, more recently. How did that come about? It, this is actually one of the m most unbelievable steps I've ever seen in my my career so far. It, it, and, and the crazy thing is it's so easy and logical. It's a, um, a company called Simonette Cirque from, in Cormons in uh, Friuli. And actually all they did is to look to cut off trunks in the middle and see what we actually ruin with our pruning systems. Uh, you know, the, the wine is a liane and wants to grow. So to bring it back to the middle, because otherwise the, the wines are in their way in each other, you know, they grow like crazy. So you bring them back and cut away old wood. So on one hand, you cut away old wood with reserve nutrients and so on, which you need in cold winters or droughts and so on. So you really cut away very important wood. And on the other hand, you know, there is a big, I don't know if this is a good English word, but a drying zone into the trunk. So you cut off all these sap channels and also diseases can come in, in, in there. So this, the, the thing you learn is actually just to cut one and two-year-old wood, but the, the trick is not to grow too far out and still have a big canopy after 25 years. Oh, I see. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, I think it's, it's quite cost-effective because there are the trainers from Italy coming. The whole team is, is teached. Everybody of our fixed team is, is teached because they have to also know in May when we have the, the green uh, work, hey, this, this little uh, um, cane I need next year for pruning. You know, It's more than just everybody can do. It's really something you have to be knowledge about. But for me, I think just if you can keep the vineyard for 10 years long, and I'm sure it's much longer, then it's worth the investment easily. And especially talking about, sorry to interrupt, but talking about biological production, I mean, of course, these things you're allowed to spray, and that's not a lot, need a healthy plant. I mean, the healthier the plant, the better it can react with all the, the materials and teas and so on. So you're saying with this, you may need to replant not as much. You could keep the vine longer before you need to replant. Absolutely. I mean, I just saw it in, in old vineyards we, we took over five years ago, 35-year-old vineyard. And, you know, the 10 years before, it was more or less nothing going on. And then you had two years of drought and a very cold wind and suddenly 5% are gone. The, the problem is here, you know, you just don't see it right away. But then if problems are coming, then suck 5% of the wines are dead. That's something we definitely can avoid with this new pruning system. You mentioned to me in the past that you're going to do a new bottling from Lom. 
and also that you have some new vineyards coming on uh, to your production. What's going on with that? What's new for you? Um, this year, in 2013, we will have uh, the first time the neighbor single vineyard of uh, Lamm, which is Kammerner Group, so also less soil between the Heiligenstein Hill and the Geisberg Hill. The um, Group is, is, is less too, as Lamm is, but in our land, I always see that, for example, snow is always the longest there. So this year I, I showed it blindly to friends and they really said this middle barrel is so different. It's totally cool and and it's like a, a cold berry would explode on your tongue. And that was group. So it's really different to the warmer lamb. And then we also will bottle from the bottom of Geisberg Hill a single vineyard called Kamana Renner, which will be a, it's a single vineyard but in lower alcohol. So we, that will be a Kamtal DRC version. It will even be lower than 13 alcohol. So uh, I think it's also good to show a single vineyard in a even more drinkable style as we even do it. And group will be a reserve style. In terms of aging your wines, you've mentioned that the fruit comes back after a period of time. How should I approach your production and the different bottlings? And if I have them in my cellar, what should I be kind of keeping in mind about when I should open them? I mean, we, we now talk to experienced wine lovers and probably I don't even have to tell but just realized a couple of weeks ago again how aging temperature at the client important is of course but but it's it's so clear but still uh, we, we just have from the wine school there was a test and even professionals were surprised how how fast a wine with 20 degrees celsius so not even kitchen temperature uh, really loses quality and I had a, a I was in uh, at the Levi Lascaz tasting two months ago and they had uh, 66, which were stored in 8 degrees for decades probably. And I would have given this wine blindly in, probably into the 90s. So beautiful color and, and fresh and, and a gorgeous wine. So what would be possible if everybody would have the perfect conditions, that would be one point. But it's from the consumer side. From my side, I think the wines are, if the grapes were healthy, if you have the acid balance, then there is no reason that these wines, you can't keep them for decades. Many, many Kamtal wines, and really I'm talking about the white wines now, um, have proven that 50, 60 years are no problem at all. And, you know, if they're really good after 60 years, there's no reason that they would collapse two years after. In terms of the different vineyards that you make, are some more approachable than others at a different time? Probably would say that Rena will be easier to drink in the youth too already. It depends on the vintage too. I mean, uh, uh, 2003, which was the hottest year here in in Europe in 270 years, I suppose in America too. Uh, um, Very, very hot. That really took a while. Even with lower alcohol, these wines needed at least three, four years to be really, really there. Uh, Grüner Wettliner often is a little easier to understand. Uh, Don't misunderstand me with easier in the youth. I would say Riesling in my winery often needs a certain time, but then it likes also to close down like in the fifth, sixth year and then comes back in the seventh year. So either drink Riesling in the first three, four years, then then don't show, uh, then look at it and then open it in after year number seven again. But I think we also learned about uh, years like 03. We definitely pick two weeks earlier now. It's really, the, the, the also with biological production, it's proven that these grapes are uh, earlier physiological ripes. So we can really pick early. And I think that's one of my big advantages producing that way. I'm more or less finished with harvest before the big botrytis pressure comes even. 
Because in general, you try to avoid the botrytis in the wine. I, I love botrytis in a Trockenbeiner's lesion. No, but I think it has nothing, it shouldn't be in a wine where you look for saltiness and, and stability for aging. And food friendliness. You know, we still talk about some of the food friendliest wines uh, on the market. So 2003 was unique in terms of the heat. What other vintages have been standout or benchmark or informative for you since you started in 95? I would say definitely 2002 and 2004, 2002 especially because we live in a 500-year-old house and it never became flooded, but that year was we had it in our living room, the Camp River, which is a very small river if you just pass by now. And so it was a, a higher acidic year. Even with four selections, you had a touch of botrytis. That's why I needed till three years ago to fall in love with it. It really took a long time. Not that extreme, but with much riper as it is 04. Also, touch uh, influenced from Protritis. Outstanding years, I would say definitely 97, 99, 06. If you didn't miss the um, uh, acid level, 06 is a beautiful year with right amount of acid. You're saying because it was a pretty ripe year, so it, some of the acids were low in some the, wines. The dangerous thing is was to become, excuse the word, greedy. You know, it was uh, they were super ripe. It was a perfect harvest. The sun was shining, so waiting to get more sugar was a dangerous thing. It really, you need then to say, okay, great, but now it's time. It's like it's like a steak. You know, you could leave it another one hour on the pan, but there's a certain stage where you should start. And what about 2013? You said it might be pretty good. It's it's I it's the first time probably in my life that I'm totally excited right after harvest. I'm, I'm always very critical about the products, but I, I love matured wines, but I have to hold myself back to not go to the winery with a little thief and and have a little glass. They're juicy, they're low in alcohol, they're mineral, they are they have everything you you want in a in a white wine, I think. It will, I think yeah, let's wait till then a bottle, of course, but I think this will be a great, great year. Are there certain years where you felt Geisberg did better than the Helgenstein or the opposite? I think in January you can definitely say the hotter the year, the easier it's for Geisbeck because Geisbeck has brown earth on top and that makes it a little easier for, for the Geisberg. And in general, Geisbeck every year, in nine from ten years, let's say, Geisberg is more the, the, the friendlier Riesling in the youth, the, the almost female charming Riesling. And Heilingstein can, can be quite of a, a rough guy, smokier, doesn't really want to show what it's all about in the youth and, and takes a bit longer. So those are the wines and the production that you're really associated with, that you focused on for a number of years. But then there was a four or five year period where you were making kind of an experimental, kind of Roman-inspired wine. How did that come about? Oh, that was fun time. Sounds like a different uh, life. Uh, it's that long ago. But a friend of mine is a chef of actually Austria's probably oldest restaurant. And they found original buildings underneath the church, not buildings, actually walls and thorn from the Romans. And he asked me to make original Roman wine, which is, of course, first tough. So I took Grüner Wittliner. And I read a book about it. They fermented a lot with fruit. They fermented with honey. And the Romans drank actually wine the whole day. In the, in the morning, they mixed it with water and stronger and stronger in the night. And, for example, we had one, the record one year was we fermented Grüner with dates, with figs, with apples, pears, quince, really and every wine was totally beautifully expressed from the fruit. 
And the the fun thing, you know, the the Romans cooked with liquam and this fermented fish sauce, like I think the nuquam, uh, oh, sure. something like this. So it's more a, a sweet, salty food. And the recipes were from Aspicius, that Gourmet who killed himself because he just had 12 million sesterza left. He thought he would can't afford it, what he wants to live at like anymore. So um, interesting recipes. They didn't have like two, take 200 grams. They said, take a lot of great olive oil or something like that. We had like uh, with this uh, liquamen thing called, there was a lot of braised food. You could never really find the perfect sommelier choice to each wine, but this not filtered uh, Roman wine was always a perfect match. And what was very interesting for me too was because we fermented with acacia honey, honey so very neutral, I think I took a kilo per, hect- per hectoliter just to not feel it, but it was there. I actually never or hardly ever sulfured and the wine was really stable. Even in the kitchen half full for 10 days, the chef Norbert said it never oxidized. So probably this antibacterial thing of the honey did a lot uh, that's my idea about it. But it was a great food. Great food. Back to the, the winery's normal production. You started in 95. Now, since that period of time, you've had three children. Do you find that they're interested in wine too and that they may follow you in the winery? Or Yeah, at the moment, you know, they are, Marie is eight and the twin boys are six and a half. And they now have like four different jobs every day from everything from music to taking over the winery is also part of it. But I want to keep it as my father. I will never uh, force them. Uh, they they should have fun with the whole thing. But uh, at the moment, Marie actually says she will be the boss. So that's the boys accept it at the moment. Let's see what it's in ten years like. So you feel it was important for you to choose that you wanted to do wine in your own life. That they it sh- wasn't just decided for you. Yes, I, I don't want them to to. It's not a no. It's not. Why do they? Why do I have to force them? You know, it's like their life. But um, if they see it's an it's a great job, it's a beautiful job out in the vineyards. You meet interesting people. You sit in New York at the interview. <laughs> uh, it's 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 a fun job, you know. And, and if we can give this love to them a little bit, I think then it should be possible. It's been a fun job for Johannes Hirsch in the Comptal, making Gruner, Veltliner, and Riesling. Thank you very much, sir, for being thank, here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. Very nice to speak with you, thank you. Johannes Hirsch of the Hirsch Winery. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.